This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, Tim Shepard with you for the Hack Podcast. How many episodes of Orange is the New Black have you seen? Enough to get by if you were behind bars? Well, a problem facing a lot of first-time prisoners is that they don't understand the prison system. And for many, it means that they miss out on the chance to be rehabilitated. But one Aussie woman is determined to see people behind bars given the information that they need to turn their lives around. And look, if you're eating something right now, then I reckon you might want to stop for a second because later we're going to talk about worms. There's been a world first discovery in Australia to do with a worm found living inside someone's brain. And we're going to chat to one of the experts involved to find out exactly what happened. Before that, though, we're going to head overseas. Hack. We hope that the Spanish authorities and the Spanish government deal with this in a manner that respects the rights of all female athletes. On Triple J. Well, the Women's World Cup is over now, and it was obviously a huge success for the sports and, of course, the Spanish team who took home the win. But sadly, it's remained in the news for all the wrong reasons. You might have seen these stories about the president of Spain's Football Federation kissing one of the country's players during the presentation of the World Cup final medals. The player, Jennifer Amoso, says she did not consent to it. And the 10 days since, more than 80 female players have refused to play for Spain unless the president is sacked or quits. Let me know your thoughts on this. You can text in on 0439757555. It's a story that's taken a lot of twists and turns, each more bizarre than the last. So if you found it all a little bit confusing, then don't worry. Our reporter, Miles Holbrook-Walk, is here to bring you up to speed. The final of the Women's World Cup was played out in front of 75,000 people in Sydney while millions across the world watched on TV. But more than a week on, it's actually something that happened after Spain won the World Cup that's got people talking. Luis Rubiales kissed World Cup winner Jenny Hermoso on the lips during the medal ceremony. He says the kiss was mutual and with consent. On Sunday, Hermoso said in a video, quote, I didn't like it, but what can I do? The Federation is still very much protecting Rubiales. On the world stage, Spain have won the World Cup. It's supposed to be one of the biggest days for star player and midfielder in the Spanish team, Jennifer Hermoso. But as she's going on stage to receive her medal, the president of football in Spain, Luis Rubiales, grabs and kisses her on the lips. His actions have caused an uproar. Rubiales went on to dig in, saying five times in an address that he wouldn't resign. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. And as he's giving this speech to football officials, he's calling his critics fake feminists and accusing them of trying to cancel him. While all that was happening, the coach of the women's team, Jorge Vilda, is applauding him. He's since come out and said Rubiales' actions weren't on. Hermoso also comes out the same day saying a statement produced by the Spanish Federation saying that she was okay with the kiss and that it was consensual was completely made up and that she never said that. She goes on to say that she's very clear that none of what happened was consensual. I felt vulnerable and the victim of an impulsive, sexist, out-of-place act and without any consent on my part. 
After the Spanish Federation and the European body governing football don't take any actions to sanction Rubiales, the global authority, FIFA, steps in, suspending Rubiales for 90 days so an investigation can take place. More than 80 players say they won't play for the women's team until he's gone. At local matches in the Spanish Men's League, one side wore a shirt saying, it's over, calling on Rubiales to go. They also unfurled a sign saying, we are all Jenny. There's a banner being displayed by the Cadiz players in support of uh, Jenny Hermoso. And when you thought this story couldn't become more outrageous, the Spanish Federation doubles down. The organisation is now threatening to sue Jenny Hermoso, claiming she is lying. The Spanish Football Association will show that these are lies that are being spread either by someone on behalf of the player or, if applicable, by the player herself. People around the world and in Spain are keeping up the pressure. Spanish politicians are demanding he resign. Newspapers are calling him a global embarrassment. And this week, hundreds gathered in Spain to protest Rubiales' conduct. He was kind of forced to do so, so... Everybody knew that it was not something that came from his heart. After threatening legal action, calling Hermoso a liar, the Spanish Federation, who for the entire situation had supported the president, they flip. In a meeting of regional leaders yesterday within Spanish football, they urged Rubiales to stand down. And now one of the most senior prosecutors in Spain has said they will investigate to see if Rubiales has committed an act of sexual aggression. All women have suffered some kind of abuse. The moment we saw the images, we automatically thought about our bosses, our professors, our teachers in the schools. Hack on Triple J. Thank you to Miles Holbrook Walk for that report. Clearly, a lot has happened in the last 10 days. And got some text coming through about this one. Someone says the amount of people on social media supporting the president is concerning. Well, yeah, this story has raised so many questions about the culture in Spanish football and how the country and some of its sporting bodies have reacted. For more on this, I've got Isabel Coots with me. She's a women's football journalist at Optus Sport. Thank you for coming on Hack, Isabel. I wish it was under better circumstances. Oh, why? Thanks for having me. The Women's World Cup was obviously a huge moment for women's sport and football specifically and the Spanish team. How much has this story taken away from Spain's win and the success of the World Cup? Well, I definitely think there's two parts to it. Obviously, it's overshadowed the win um, as a standalone kind of achievement by itself. It's always now going to be intrinsically attached to this. Um, but I hope, obviously, in the long run that uh, we'll be able to look back and that this will be kind of a, a moment, a watershed moment in Spanish football because they obviously didn't have 12 of their stars there. They, they had already boycotted and were already kind of moving towards um, change and trying to change the federation. So I think this was the final straw and this is going to be that watershed moment they get and they can actually have that um, cultural change inside the federation, inside Spanish football altogether. Yeah, I do want to talk about that cultural change in a minute, but can we, we'll start with the actual details of what's going on because the Spanish Football Federation has now called on Luis Rubiales to go. FIFA has suspended him. Members of the government have also condemned him. 81 players are refusing to play unless he's removed. How can he still be in the role at this point? That's the million-dollar question. I think a lot of people are kind of 
under the impression that maybe he has a lot of dirt or they're alleging that he has a lot of information on the RFES uh, internally um, because that seems to be the only reason why he would still be there. They've said they've asked him to resign and they hope he will, but still there's been no forcible you are fired, you are you know removed from this position. So it's all just going to come down to him and, and if he can um, finally accept that he was in the wrong here and that he needs to go and there needs to be systematic change in the Federation and that kind of obviously starts with, with his resignation. But until that happens, there, there's a bit of a crossroads there um, unless there are those criminal proceedings. But does the Football Federation have the power to actually just remove him or they need him to agree to go? That's a great question. I think they kind of, I think they should have the power to do that. Um, but the problem is it, it comes down to that committee and, and a, a vote, I would guess. Um, like any type of um, major organisation, it's going to come down to those stakeholders and they've all said, we want you to go. Um, so I think they're kind of just sitting on their hands at the moment and don't want to make that move. So I think it's going to come down to him stepping down and if that doesn't happen, they're going to have to force it with a vote. So I think they they have the capacity to do that. Um, it's just going to be whether they want to kind of, you know, come to that that point and force him out that way. Yeah, and I mean, the Spanish Football Federation, I mean, I want to ask about them because initially they did support the president. They even at one point, I believe, threatened legal action against Jennifer Omoso, Um, and then now they've backflipped. And so um, my question is, what exactly is going on at the Spanish Football Federation? Which side are they taking? Well, now that he has been out and that, you know, all eyes are on them, they're definitely taking Hermoso's side, which obviously was the right one to begin with, but... I think you just can kind of see, um, and we saw it with Hermoso's own words when she finally released that statement after his speech that was just a tangent. He, uh, She said that, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We've been dealing with this type of stuff internally and kind of behind closed doors for, for years now. Um, so I think them um, wanting to get out of this is only going to be, he's only going to be able to get out of this and, and, and the toxicity, sorry, um, is coming from the top down and it's just been internally. So now that there's all eyes open and, and all eyes are on the Federation, I think they're going to have to change that and, and have that systematic change we've been talking about. But, yeah, it took something of this magnitude to get there and, and open it up because, like I said, pre-tournament we already had, you know, those um, boycotts from those 12 players, some of the best in the world, playing for Barcelona and Women Champions League. So, yeah, it's going to come down to them fully systematic change in that federation and that starts obviously from the top so I think it it came from him you know demanding things um probably from his marketing team and things like that um and that's what the result has been it's been that backflip that only came when you know everything kind of pressurized on him yeah and I wanted to ask about this too because a lot of our audience might not know too much about Spanish football is and you sort of mentioned this but is this incident maybe something that's really blown the lid on a problematic culture that's been going on there for a while? Yeah, for sure. So um, the the main problem to begin with um, was obviously the the coach, uh, Jorge Vilda. Um, they just said under him after the Euros loss that they wanted to um, uh, kind of address some of the concerns they had and some of those concerns were obviously like tactically um but also most of it came down to that culture and it came down to like just disrespect of the women's program. Um, it also came down to things like Vilda was uh, allegedly um, making players keep their doors open um, until midnight and then he would personally check that they were in there. Mm. Um, also there was allegations of him like ruffling through their like shopping to make sure he could see what they'd bought. So just like controlling tactics. So right. this isn't 
you know, the first instance of that. This has been building towards it because Vilda's been there since uh, 2015 he took over and then um, uh, Rubielis has been there as well since I think like 2017 or 2018. So it's been something that's kind of been simmering away in the background um, And but this has been, you know, the watershed moment where everyone's not been able to look away, I guess. You're listening to Hack. I'm Tim Shepard and I'm chatting with Isabel Coots from Optus Sport about this story out of Spain involving a non-consensual kiss from the boss of Spain's Football Federation and a Spanish player, Jennifer Omoso. We've got a lot of texts coming through. Nate says, I don't get it. They aren't dating. It's not okay to just kiss somebody without asking, let alone on the lips. Maya from Sydney says, I'm Spanish and after playing soccer in Spain when I was younger, it's surprising to see how unimportant they think girls' football is there. It's honestly sad that the Federation isn't siding with the women's team. Yeah, a lot of uh, opinions coming through on this one. I mean, Isabel, what about legal action? Could we see uh, Luis Rubiales charged over this? Yeah, for sure. We've, um, the High Court is kind of exploring that in Spain right now. They're kind of investigating, but if they don't... Um, hear from um, Hermoso herself, I think within 15 days, once they make that contact, um, then it kind of, I think, does fizzle out. So um, sadly, it's going to come down to Hermoso, um, especially as well, it can only go to the High Court because obviously it happened in Australia. Um, so that's the only option that way. Um, otherwise, you know, civil action and things like that. And she hasn't really ruled that out in her statement. I kind of think she hinted at that would be the next path, especially after the threats against herself, just, you know, speaking out and, and, and setting the record straight and, and telling her side of the story of the alleged assault. Yeah. And I just want to ask as well about Luis Rubiales himself and his family's reaction, because there's this story about his mother on a hunger strike as well. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that is just insane. I think that was kind of the the final nail in the coffin. Everyone was like, what is going on? Um, it seems like a Hollywood movie, but sadly it's the reality of life in Spain in football right now. Um, she kind of, allegedly the Spanish reporters are saying that she actually, they actually set up, the family set up this press conference and it was for that, um, the mother's hunger strike. And then, um, yeah, the cousin came out and, Thankfully, doctors and police eventually intervened, um, but she said it was due to the inhuman treatment of her son and that she wasn't going to stop until that kind of died down, I guess, um, which mm. obviously wasn't going to happen. So thankfully they they stepped in, but her, I think it was his cousin has been quoted saying that they're suffering a lot, he's being judged, um, the media won't stop harassing the family, we had to leave our home. Um, but again, and they asked for Jenny to tell the truth. Um, they say it's not fair, but obviously the truth is in, um, a lot of different camera angles and a lot of different, um, images. So I, I just don't yeah. know what's going on there. It seems very, um, bizarre. Yeah. I mean, a story with a lot of elements and hopefully there's some kind of resolution and everyone can get back to enjoying the game. Isabel Coots, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Hack today. Thank you. All right. Time to move on. Hack. Once you've been to prison, your whole life changes for that reason. Like, it is easier to go back in than it needs to stay out. On Triple Jack. How much do you know about what it's like to go to prison in Australia? Not a lot, right? Well, it's actually the case for a lot of people who do end up behind bars. From the moment you're arrested right through to applying for bail, it can be a really confusing process. And the lack of support can make people more likely to end up back in prison. But one woman from Sydney is determined to change that by helping to guide others through the system with the help of an app. Sean Tarek Goodwin has this story. 
From the moment I was arrested, which is where you really enter the system, to the moment I was released, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Right from the moment Belle Walker went into custody at the police station, she felt completely swamped by the system. You're sharing a cell there with six other people. You're all on a few mattresses. There's not really um, any indication of when you'll be leaving there or what's next. So I actually found out from other people that were being held themselves where I would be going and how the system worked. Belle spent eight months behind bars and says there was never any easily accessible info about how to deal with this new world around her or how to cope afterwards. When I was released from prison, I hadn't been outside, like in the dark for eight months. So 3 p.m. onwards, you're locked up. So even just going out to do normal things, being having the freedom to be anywhere, is really daunting. If I'd had a basic understanding of just even how to cope, what um, things that I could ask for, which a lot of the others knew that I didn't know about, my whole experience would have been quite different. So now Bell's created an app to help other women through the justice system, particularly in New South Wales. So basically, you'll see along the top here, there's the different stages from the moment you're arrested, so the moment you're with police, to the moment that you are leaving, so after release there. When she was inside, Belle wrote a diary. Every day wrote down stories I'd heard and my personal experiences and then also made notes of things that I would do differently. It helped her make the digital resource called Arrest to Release, which is meant to act as a survival guide. The goal is that it'll be one of the few approved sites that you can access on tablets in prison. You need simple, short facts, images, things that you can either click on something and you're given like a mind snack, like a short snippet of information. You need to have very simple knowledge provided to you in a way that everyone can take on. You know, you've said to me in the past that you come from, in many ways, a privileged background. I mean, what was your view of how people would cope if they had even less sort of understanding of the world or or literacy or Mm -hmm. anything like that than you did? I think turning a really bad situation into something like something positive that's what's helped me sort of deal with like the trauma side of prison but when you enter prison you realize that there are people with like severe disability that have low level literacy um, people with really really poor mental health the project's being backed by the keeping women out of prison coalition which is part of the sydney community foundation their ceo loredana fife says the resources currently meant to help with this aren't working We know that the majority of women in prison have an acquired brain injury. A lot of that acquired through DV, addiction, fetal alcohol syndrome, a list of things that for a lot of people there's little or no control over. The New South Wales Department of Corrections had committed funding for the project under the previous coalition state government, but that's now under review by the new Minns Labor government. The government says that's still ongoing, but advocates say the need is urgent. The reception is very strong. It's kind of like the appetite is, we needed this yesterday. Mindy Satiri is the executive director of the Justice Reform Initiative. She's watched a rise in the number of women incarcerated in New South Wales and around the country. Over the last decade, there's been significant increases in a number of different populations, but the women's population in a number of jurisdictions has 
increased at a rate that's disproportionate to other populations. She says without access to proper support, going to prison makes people more likely to commit crime, not less. There's actually the opportunity to address those reasons why it is that the women who end up in prison do end up sort of on that trajectory rather than sort of the alternative, which is, I guess, where programs like what Bell's trying to do come into play. Bell Walker is hoping that having been in these women's shoes, she can help them take control of their lives when they're at their most vulnerable. You know, I know prison is a prickly topic um, and it's not a glamorous area to, you know, people to, to want to help in, but it's something that could really better so many people's lives and I've seen firsthand that there are, you know, there is a very humane side to prison. Hack on Triple J. That report from Sean Tarek Goodwin, a really important topic there. It is time to move on though. Hack. For a moment, we're all stunned. My registrar thought, is that an artery? I just thought, I don't know, but it's moving. Please take it out of my tweezers. On Triple Jack. Have you ever had a song stuck in your mind that you can't get to go away? You might know it as an earworm, right? Well, what about an actual live worm running around in your brain? Doctors in Australia have become the first in the world to find a worm that's usually found in pythons living inside someone's brain. It was eight centimetres long and it was discovered during brain surgery. What did you think when you heard this? Hit me up on 0439 757 Dr. Sanjaya Senanayaka is a infectious diseases expert with ANU. He was part of the team that actually helped make this discovery and he's with me now. Dr. Senanayaka, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, look, it's a pleasure to be here. Look, I'll be honest, this story, when I heard it, made my skin crawl. I just need to know, how long was the worm inside of this woman's brain and what was it doing to her? We don't actually know the answer to that. We know that this uh, lady, looking back on it, has had the larvae or or the worms travelling in other parts of her body, like the lungs and the liver. And certainly she'd had a few weeks to a, a couple of months of not feeling quite right in terms of her memory and her mood, which prompted the MRI, which showed the abnormal mass in the front of her brain. And that ultimately led to the surgery and finding that live wriggling worm. But how long it had been there, we really don't know. What we do know from animal studies, because this was the first human case with this particular parasite, we know in small mammals that this stage of the parasite can live for at least four years in a small mammal. So it's hard to know how long it was there and how long it could have continued to live there. Wow, four years. That's a really long time. And I mean, when a worm is inside of someone's brain like this, I mean, obviously, there's probably a lot you still don't know. But is it just sitting in one spot, like making a home somewhere? Or is it moving around? What's it doing inside the body? So look, with this particular worm, uh, we don't know how it would behave in, in, in a human. So it's hard to know. But certainly, we have seen other worms infect people or infect people's brains and they do move you've had you've seen mri scans where in one scan there is an abnormal abnormal mass in one part of the brain then a 
few weeks or months later, it's in another part. So they definitely move and they can cause damage as they move, move along. Some people get epilepsy or seizures. That's probably the most common manifestation that we see. But uh, thankfully, it didn't look like too much had happened to this lady. Yeah, I was going to ask, what happens to this woman now that they've removed the worm? Is that it for her or does she need to have uh, more treatment as time goes on? So, again, it's important to remember that though we found that eight-centimetre worm in her brain, she had spots on her lungs and liver earlier on, suggesting that she had not just one little worm but smaller forms of the worm inside of her body. So it was really important once we found that worm to just give her a general really prolonged antiparasitic treatment with medication, which we did for about four weeks. And she was able to leave hospital quite quickly after that. And she's been in the community ever since. Uh, Obviously, because this is an unusual case, we're keeping in contact with her, in close touch with her. But uh, so far, things seem okay. And you mentioned that this is, you know, a world first discovery involving this type of worm. What makes it so significant? Look, there. if you take away that the ick factor, which I think, uh, which has been sort of the, the hook for so many people, the wriggling eight centimetre worm in someone's brain, even without that, it is a really significant, important case. Everyone thinks uh, that new infections, like pandemics, they only occur every hundred years. But the reality is this, in the past 30 years, we've seen 30 new infections appear in the world. of those are animal infections that have learnt how to infect humans. So we call them zoonoses or zoonotic transmission when uh, animal infections come across to humans. And this is just another example of this. And it just shows that as our human population is burgeoning in number, that human habitats are encroaching on natural animal habitats and we're seeing humans, wild animals, domestic animals and natural flora all interacting more closely than we would. So this won't be the last time we see a new infection appear. But it is a new infection, the first in the world that we've documented in humans, so it's important. It's also important because this parasite is found in snakes in other parts of the world. So it's possible with awareness of this case scientists and healthcare workers elsewhere in the world will start to see some cases that they can identify and treat. Does this mean we're going to need to be on the lookout for other parasites that we didn't think could harm us, but they actually are now harming us? Look, it it certainly is possible, but I, I really want to reiterate, this is the first case and it's likely to be a rare thing. We will probably see more cases, but we're not going to see, uh, hundreds every year or, uh, 10 or so every every week. So if you've got a bit of a headache, don't assume that it's a live worm inside of you. Common things still happen commonly, but these are exotic possibilities that we now need to consider because of the way humans and animals in their natural environment interact. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Tim Shepard and I'm speaking with infectious disease expert Dr. Sanjaya Senanaika about the discovery of a worm inside a woman's brain in Australia. It's a world first discovery for this type of worm. Look, I think the big question that everyone's going to be wondering is how did the worm get inside this woman's brain? Do we know that? No, it's a great question. And we could only start to try and piece that together once we'd worked out what the worm was. 
And how this normally works in the natural, in our, in the natural world or the real world is that a snake will have this parasite. The parasite will excrete eggs and the eggs will be excreted with the python poo. Mm. Now, small mammals and marsupials will consume vegetation or other things that are contaminated with that poo and parasite eggs. And then they will get infected and the, the parasite will start to mature in those particular animals. And then what some of those unlucky animals are going to be consumed by pythons, they're going to get swallowed by pythons, and the more mature parasite will now be in the python to complete the life cycle. So that's what normally happens, uh, Tim. But what we think's happened here is that this uh, our patient co- collected warrigal greens, which is a natural type of grass. A lot of people do this, apparently. And she would uh, use it for cooking purposes. So we think python feces have most likely contaminated the warrigal greens as snakes have passed over them. And she's inadvertently ingested some of the parasite eggs. And that's led to her being what we call an accidental host and the parasite developing in her. So maybe the message is to be a bit more careful about what kind of food you're eating out in the wild. Look, what kind of food you're eating, but also uh, even if you collect things if you if you're a forager and you collect things from outside uh, even if you're not consuming them just to make sure you wash your hands extra carefully <laughs> there's a good chance there won't be anything on them but uh just in case there are it's a very easy thing to do yeah, well, i think a lot of people are going to be a bit more careful going forward thank you so much for coming on dr sanjaya Senanaika. oh no no that that's that's a pleasure thank you tim uh, very happy to talk that was Dr. Sanjaya Senanayaka, an expert in infectious diseases who helped to identify this new type of worm found living inside an Aussie woman's brain. A few people texting in about this one. Cass says, oh my God, I'm literally gagging at the thought of having a worm in my brain. So scary. Well, remember to wash your hands. That was the advice coming out there. A couple of people also asking about the earlier story about the app that's helping prisoners, wanting to know a little bit more. If you do want to find out more about Bell's Inmate app, you can read more about a story online. There's a really great ABC article about it there. And that's all we have time for on the Hack Podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hack on Triple Jack.